Guys, you can have a seat, and uh, this morning we're going to begin a new series in Matthew chapter 11, so if you've got your Bibles with you and you wanted to follow along, we're going to be there for several weeks, and uh, I hope that you'll study this during the week and let God begin to pour into you some of the things that he would want to say to you. Uh, This series is for those who have uh, ever been disappointed, those who've ever had doubts about who Jesus is, or those who've even considered just walking away. I think if you've been one of those, then this morning, this series will be incredibly encouraging to you. For the rest of you who've grown up in church, maybe, uh, you've tried hard to keep the rules. You feel like you've done a, a pretty daggum good job of towing the line. This series might be a little more challenging for you. But this series may also be the most important thing you've ever heard in a long, long time. Matthew chapter 11, the whole chapter flows out of a question that John poses to Jesus. Uh, The whole chapter is really Jesus' response to John's two-part question. I think that if you and I will be intellectually honest, if we will be spiritually open, and if we will come hungry for truth, that this This message from God's Word can change everything about us. This chapter has done something I I can't put into words in my heart as I've worked to prepare it. Uh, Now, in order for us to understand what's going on in Matthew chapter 11, let me give you just a little bit of background on, on, on who's involved in this. It's a story about John the Baptist. You guys are probably familiar with John the Baptist, especially those of you that, that grew up in the church. John, um, was kind of a second cousin to Christ. He was called the forerunner of Christ. Uh, Jesus would later say in this chapter that he was the goat. He was the greatest of all times. Of, of all men ever born to women, none exceeded John, Jesus would say. John was filled with the Holy Spirit since his mother's womb. He, he's the one that announced the coming of the Messiah. He's the one that called Israel to repent in order to welcome God. He became powerful. He became popular. Crowds by the thousands would go out to see John. Uh, he, he refused to be known as the Messiah. He said he was just a voice of the one calling in the wilderness. Uh, he said that there was one coming after him that would be greater, the ones that he was not worthy to even untie his sandals. John says things like, I'm the one that baptizes you with water, but Jesus comes to baptize you with the Holy, Holy Spirit and with fire. John's the one that made the famous statement that he must increase, but I must decrease. John's even the one that baptized Jesus. And in that process, saw the dove descend upon Jesus. Heard the voice of God say, this is my son, the one in whom I am well pleased, the one whom I love. John's the one that saw Jesus walking by and said, there, there is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. John even released his disciples to go and to follow Jesus. You see, John was the one that had no doubt that Jesus was who he said he was. And John did not hold back. As God revealed truth to John, John shouted the truth from the rooftops. But on this day... In the book of Matthew, chapter 11, something has changed in John. John's struggling. John's faith has been challenged. And he's not sure what to think. Ever been there? Ever had those haunting questions that just ring in your mind that make you go, is, is it true or is it not? Have I believed the truth or have I believed a lie? Is Jesus real or is Jesus not real? If you ever ask those kind of questions, then, then you're right where John found himself. So let's start with some good news for every doubter, for every skeptic, for every person that's really truthfully hungry for the truth. 
Here's the good news. John asked an honest question of Jesus. Zach read it to us just a minute ago. And here's the truth about Jesus. He never dodges an honest question. John says, Jesus, are you the one? And Jesus doesn't dodge his questions. Jesus gives John a straightforward answer. In fact, the truth is, Jesus is never offended by sincere questions. Now, he is offended by those who want to hide behind questions, who who go and try to find questions to ask to justify their sin or to justify their, their, their not coming to Jesus. He's offended by that, but he's never offended by true questions. He's never offended by sincere questions. I think that the question John asks is a question that every one of us wants and needs answered. I think some have found that answer and others are still searching. And I'm glad that both groups are here. John asks a question and Jesus gives a sincere answer. Now John's question is not the question you would expect coming from the forerunner of Christ, from the one who's, who screamed, there, there is the Son of God. You wouldn't expect this question coming from John. From God, from John. In this question, John expresses a genuine doubt about Jesus. But in his answer, Jesus expresses an absolute delight in John. There's nowhere Jesus would rather you take your questions than to him. So sincere questions are not to be feared. Now, Zach read to us Matthew chapter uh, chapter 11, 1 through 6. And I want us to take a closer look at at John's questions. They're in verses 2 and verse 3. It's a two-part question that John asked. The first part is this. Are you the one who is to come? The second part, or should we look for another? Two parts to this question. Two parts that give us insight into what's going on in, in John's world and life and, and what's going on inside his mind. The, the first question is, is, is a question that had to be hard for John to ask. John's been the forerunner. He's been the guy out front. He's been one that everybody has shown up and looked to for the answer of where is the Messiah. I want you to pause for just a minute. And I want you to think about how hard it must have been for John to ask that question, especially out loud. What will everybody think of me if I express that I've actually got a doubt about God? What will they, I've said, this is a guy, this is a one, follow him. What are they going to think if I'm going, oh, wait, 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 are you really the one? Think about how hard it must have been for him to ask that question. How humiliating for him to be at that point. And the worst part, John couldn't even slip out and ask Jesus privately at night the way Zacchaeus had done. Uh, Not Zacchaeus, (laughs) Uh, uh, Nicodemus had done. He couldn't do it privately. He had to call in his disciples and say, guys, look, I know I've been telling you all this stuff all this time. I need you to do me a favor. I need you to go ask Jesus. And when they show up, (laughs) they don't even ask Jesus in private. They don't say, Jesus, hey, our buddy John's got a question for you. It's asked in public. It's asked in front of a crowd. How humiliating, how tough, how difficult. But John had to know the answer. Let's consider this first part. Are you the one? Every Jew knew that there was coming a Messiah. They believed that the Messiah had been promised. They believed that God would send him. They'd waited for thousands of years for him to come. And now John had told everybody who it was. Why would John be asking this question? 
Verse 2 gives us an insight why John might be asking this question. It says in verse 2 that John was in prison. Now, now when John heard in prison about what Jesus was doing, there it is. Why is John doubting? Because there's, there's stuff going on in John's world that he can't make sense of. There's things going on in John. There's things running through his head. There's things in his life that have happened that have left him asking some questions. John's been in prison. He's been locked up at this point for over a year. He's locked up not for doing evil, not for doing bad, but for speaking truth to power. He had condemned Herod's adulterous relationship with his sister-in-law. And evidently, unlike in our day, (laughs) power didn't like to be reminded of the truth. Aren't you glad it's not that way today? He spoke truth to power and ended him up in prison. When John was first arrested, he probably hoped that this Messiah would leverage his great popularity and, and come and back him up, that he would, he would pick it out front of the jail with these signs, justice for John, that he would show up and do something to, to, to rescue John, to work for his quick release. But none of these things happened. Days turned to weeks, weeks turned to months, and months now it turned into a year. And John sat there in that black hole. John was in the midst of a struggle. I believe it was an identity struggle a spiritual struggle, this mental struggle of what's going on inside of his, in his mind. It, it's a crisis of belief. And most every strong Christian has been there. Some will admit it and others will not, but most strong Christians ha- have been there. So what caused this crisis of belief? What, what led to these doubts? I read some, some scholars this week that suggested a couple different things. Some suggested that it was John's condition, that he was, in fact, he was in prison. Some says that John was wrestling with the exclusive claims that Jesus was making about himself, that he saw Jesus as this proud, arrogant guy who said, it's all about me, and John was wrestling with that. Some said that it was John's awareness that Jesus kept talking about the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross, and John couldn't understand how a Messiah could have to go to the cross. So let's look at these three and see what we think and why, what, what, what Scripture says about, about these things. And so let's start in reverse order. Let's look at the cross. What, what about the cross? Was, was, was the cross the thing that was a stumbling block for John? Was the cross the thing that, that made John pull back and, and have doubts? Was that the thing that was offensive to John? I don't think so. You see, at this point in the timeline, we're still very early in Jesus' ministry. At this point, there's the, the cross motif has not been fully developed. Jesus hasn't been just sitting down with the disciples and, and with the public saying, hey guys, listen, I'm, I'm headed to Jerusalem tomorrow and I'm going to die. He hasn't reached that point yet. It, the cross motif is not fully developed. And so probably it's not John struggling with the impact of that, 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 that the cross was coming, that humans were so evil and so wicked and so sinful that the Son of God had to leave heaven to come and to die in their place. I don't think that motif has been developed yet. So I don't think that's John's main struggle. However, I do think it's a big struggle in our world today. I think there are people today who are not willing to admit that they are that desperate, that they are that lost, that God would have to leave heaven and come die in their place. I think people today think that, well, I, I, I don't need a savior. I just need a helper. It's, it's like these, these guys trying to climb over a wall. And they just need somebody to give them a boost. I'm almost there. I can almost touch. Just, just give me a little boost and I'll get over. And, and that's the kind of Savior that they want. It, it's just a helper, not a Savior. 
And the reason they want just a helper and not a savior is if he just helps me a little, then I'll just owe him a little. But if I have to admit that he helped me the whole way, then I've got to give him everything I've got. I think our world struggles with this idea that we are so wicked that the Son of God had to come and to die in our place. Paul talks about how, how offensive the, the, the message of the cross is to the world around us. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18. He says, the word of the cross, the message that the cross was necessary, it's, it's foolish, it's folly to those who are lost, who are perishing. But to those of us who are actually being saved, that's, that's the power of God. What's he saying? The world thinks the cross is foolishness. They, they, they've discarded that truth. They don't need that truth. That, that just, oh, he was a nice guy. Sad that he had to die, but, but gee whiz. The cross is, is a problem for them. Later in that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 1, 22, 23, Paul says this. He says, Jews demand signs. That's what they want. Show us another miracle, Jesus. You want us to believe in you? Let's do another miracle. It's the people at the foot of the cross going, if he's really the son of God, let him, let him take care of himself off the cross. It's the thief on the cross saying, Jesus, if you're really who you say you are, get us all down. It, it's the world saying, we want some, some signs, we want some miracles. Jews demand the signs. Greeks, oh, they were the sophisticated ones. They were the intelligent ones. They want wisdom. Let's, let's make sense of all this. Paul says it doesn't change what we preach. We preach Jesus Christ crucified. Yeah, it's a stumbling block to the Jews. And yeah, it seems like foolishness to the, to the Gentiles. But that's our message and we're not changing it. Because the cross is central. I don't think it was John's problem, but I think it's a huge problem in today's world. What about the, the, the claims that Jesus was making? Jesus had some pretty radical claims in his ministry. Some of his claims were kind of veiled, and, and some were more brazen. You don't want to do this. This would be a great thing to look at. Up to this point, if you go back through the Gospels and read up to this point in the timeline, what has Jesus actually claimed about himself? He, he's called people to drop everything and to follow him. That's pretty bold. He said, if you don't love me more than your mother, father, brother, sister, anything else on this earth, if you don't love me more than everything else, then, well, you're not worthy of me. Jesus was changing people's names. He was changing their identity. Is this some kind of a cult he's starting? His beatitudes seem to be a smack in the face of this Jewish pride. We're the people of God. He called them to love their enemies, but the truth is they hated Rome. Love Rome? Love our enemies? He called them to choose between their love for God and their love for money. You can't have both, he says. He, he says to, the, to, to some, he says, look, if you want to get into heaven, then, then you've got to be more religious and more righteous than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And they thought, impossible, we can't do that. There's nobody more religious than them. Jesus even claimed to have the authority to forgive sins. He didn't just go up and heal people. He says, your sins are forgiven. Who could do that but God? Was Jesus claiming to be God? Absolutely. And for some, that's offensive. Jesus said things like, take up your cross and follow me. If you want to live, you better be willing to die. Here was one. <laughs> the demons, when they showed up, they confessed, you are the son of God. Which is all the more reason not to believe it, right? Who can trust a demon? 
Jesus even made a statement in Matthew chapter 7 that there's going to be a day when all the people are gathered around him. Him. He says, I tell you, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. He sounds like he's going to be the gatekeeper. Yeah. And, and I'll tell them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. These are some pretty bold claims. Were, were it the claims that Jesus was making that was so offensive to John? People listened to Jesus. And he was saying that he was going to turn away from heaven preachers and healers and prophets. Who was this guy? Had he lost his mind? And Jesus' family says, we think so. And they came to get him and to take him back home. Said, man, this, this Galilean heat's gotten to him. Let's get him home. Let's cool him down. He's lost his mind. Some think that these claims that Jesus was making are the things that offended John the most. All that talk of exclusivity. All that talk about there's a, a wide gate and a narrow gate. You better pick the narrow gate. Those statements that Jesus would make that are saying, I, I am the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Were it the exclusive claims that bothered John? I don't think so. They may offend us. They may offend you. And they may offend multitude of others in our day and in our time. But John was a straight shooter, man. John was a guy who didn't mince words. He called it like he saw it. He was a truth seeker and he was a truth speaker. I don't think these claims of Jesus prompted John's question. You see, truth didn't scare John. As long as he knew it was true. Which may be why he's asking the question, are you the one? Are you the one? John had made some pretty bodacious claims about the kingdom himself. Think about it. He'd called the religious elite broods of vipers. He threatened that God would cut them off if they didn't produce fruit of repentance. He had this super high view of Christ's unique power and his authority and his position. He, 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 he was a guy that, that was unlike our world today, that's seeking this tolerance and this political correctness. This idea we've all got to just be happy together, no matter what you believe or what you think. Christ's claims didn't offend John. They may offend us, but they didn't offend John. John wasn't worried about keeping everybody happy. John wanted to see the kingdom come in power. He wanted to see people turn to God. John didn't want some wimpy Messiah. He didn't look for a sissy Savior. John wasn't looking for someone inoffensive. John was looking for the truth. And I think down deep in our hearts, we are too. And here's the kicker. John knew, he knew a lot of these truths. John had even spoken a lot of these truths. But the issue was not what John knew in his head. The issue was what John had applied to his heart. Now John's in prison. And he's struggling. He's got the information in his head. But has it hit his heart? Has it changed his life? And here's where it gets really uncomfortable for those of us in the church. 
for those of us who grew up in the church. The Bible says that John the Baptist was given the spirit when he was in his mother's womb. Some of you were given the church when you were in your mother's womb. And thank God for parents that bring us to church. But here's where it makes us uncomfortable. We have sat through the Sunday school lessons. We have listened to lecture after lecture, sermon after sermon. And and we can quote that stuff. We can tell you theologically who Jesus is, what he came to do, why he was here. We can tell you all that kind of stuff. But the real question is, has it hit our heart? See, John was filled with the Spirit since birth. That was kind of unique. Nobody else really liked that. He was used by God mightily, but God also spoke through donkeys. John was bold and courageous and uncompromising. There's a lot of lost people that are the same way. But here's the kicker. John still needed God's saving grace. Most of the commentaries that I read this week said this. They're convinced that John was already a believer at this point. Look at all the things John did. And if that's our measurement of who's a believer and who's not, is, is, is what we're doing? That's a little sketchy to me. Because I got real good at doing. And I was still lost. John was still in need of God's saving grace. What God was trying to show John is that John was still helpless on his own. That he was still poor and powerless. And so John's in prison. John's condition, John's circumstances are showing him what's really going on in the human heart. So I don't think it's a cross, or I don't think it's just these claims that, that Jesus was, was making, him, making for himself. I don't think it's that. I think it's this helplessness that John feels while he's in prison. I think in his condition, his current circumstances, is causing John to take this, this hard, long look at who he was and who Christ was. Here's this rugged outdoorsman. Sleeps under the stars every night. He's just a, a free spirit to go wherever God would lead him to say whatever God told him to do. And all of that has changed now. He's locked up in a, in a hole in the ground. Maybe not with any daylight coming through. We don't know what that jail cell was like, but we know from excavations that it was a hole in the ground that John was stuck in. Isolated from everybody. Probably finding it hard even to hear from God. We can only imagine what John's feeling on the inside as he's locked up in prison. This guy who who used to be the one everybody came to for advice, and now there he is feeling this, this forgotten, feeling irrelevant, feeling unuseful, unneeded, maybe even unwanted. Here's the the heart of the issue. John was no longer able to do anything for God. And I think it's creating an identity crisis. John's not able to prove his worth to the world. He's not able to bolster his identity in the eyes of others. I'm pretty sure John must have felt helpless and hopeless, useless, like he'd been sidelined or silenced and powerless. This wasn't what John envisioned in his 20s, and now here he is in his early 30s, and it looks like life is winding down. John's disappointments are turning to doubt. This, this identity crisis that he finds himself in the, in the middle of is causing him to say, I, I'm not sure who I am anymore, and maybe I'm not even sure who Jesus is. You've got to think in that year that he's in that hole, he's got to be asking himself the question, did I, did I miss something? Did, did I pick the wrong guy? Uh, Jewish prophecies had said that, 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 that these prophets would come before the Messiah, 
maybe Jesus was one of those prophets. Maybe John jumped the gun. Maybe he hitched his wagon to the, to the wrong horse. Maybe he led a parade down the wrong street. John's mind's got to be racing. There's nobody around him to confirm or deny his questions. He had to get somebody to Jesus because he had to know the truth, no matter how humiliating it was to ask the question. He had to know. You know why? Because his heart could not rest until he knew, which is why he asked the second question. Lord, are you the one? That's the first question. Or should I keep looking? There was none of this. If you're not it, I quit. If you're not it, I just don't think I can know. If you're not it, I'm, I'm done. John says, I, I got one thing, Jesus. Either you're it or I got to keep looking because there's something in my heart that won't let me sit still. There's something in my heart that won't let me just sit still. Are you the one or should we keep looking? My soul can't rest till I find the one. The one who will not only tell me the truth about himself, but the one who can tell me the truth about myself. John couldn't find rest for his soul until he knew. And guess what? Neither can you. And neither can I. I remember laying in bed at night wondering, night after night after night, if I really knew Jesus or if I would just gotten really good at being religious. Our souls can't find rest until we have that question answered. Are you it? Or do I need to just keep looking? You see, whether your circumstances in life are great or they're grim, whether they're calm or they're chaotic, whether they're, they're, they're delightful or they're dire circumstances, we need to know who he is. Because it's only in knowing who Jesus is that we finally understand who we are. John has to know, and so do we. Is Jesus the one's? Because our hearts won't rest until we know for certain. So John's circumstances might have prompted his question. But I don't think, and this is important, I don't think John sees his condition, his circumstances, as his main concern. You say, why would you say that? If I was locked in prison, that would be my main concern. That's not John's main concern. You say, how do you know that? Because John doesn't do what most of us would do. John doesn't do what others had done. John doesn't come to Jesus making demands. He, he doesn't come to Jesus when he's in a bad spot and say, Jesus, if you're really who you are, get me out of this. That's not John's request. Because John sees that his circumstances are not his main concern. He doesn't come and say, if, you who are, if you're who you say you are, get me out of here. If you are the one, then change my circumstances. I don't like it. He doesn't do what the thief on the cross says, where if you're it, then get us down. He doesn't do what many people say, where they come to Jesus and say, well, I'll believe in you if, if, and here's my demands. Because people like that are not looking for a Lord. People like that are looking to be their own Lord. To John's credit, John was looking for a savior and not a genie. He could just rub the jar and see him appear. John was looking for somebody that he could worship, not somebody he could control. John wanted somebody who could save him, not somebody that could just soothe him. John's soul was restless, and he needed to know. 
Here's why John doesn't make the the mistake of issuing an ultimatum to Jesus. Because John knew that if Jesus was the one, if he was it, then not one minute of John's journey would have been a mistake. Not one sacrifice he had made would have been too great. Not one struggle that he fought through was was, was too, too, too deep and too hard. Not one thing that Jesus had required of John would ever be asking too much if Jesus was really the one. John knew that if Jesus was the one, then he was worthy of everything John had and so much more. But John also knew that if Jesus were not the one, there wasn't anything that guy could do to help him anyway. They couldn't fix John's real problem. So what John needed the most was truth. That same truth that our hearts crave. It's not one sign that John's going to give up. Jesus, are you it or do I need to keep looking? John couldn't give up. He was pressing on. He, he wasn't hiding behind questions. He's hunting for answers. So how did Jesus respond to John's questions? It's interesting what Jesus didn't do. Jesus didn't scold John. How dare you ask that kind of question? It doesn't come from Jesus' lips. John doesn't do what many parents today want to do. My world, my rules, shut up. You don't have the right to ask me that. I don't owe you an explanation. None of that. Jesus doesn't even belittle John in front of the crowd. In fact, we'll see next week that Jesus actually builds John up. He's the greatest. Of all those born to women, John's the greatest. No one's greater. Jesus does the opposite of what you'd expect. He welcomes John's question. And yet he offers John this simple yet profound, honest answer. Now, on the surface, it's easy to miss the impact of what Jesus says, but it's profound. And it's exactly what John needed to hear on that day. It's also what you and I need to hear today. Look at verse 4. Here's Jesus' response. John says, are are you it or do I need to keep looking? And Jesus says to the two disciples, I want you to go and I want you to tell John what you hear and what you see. Tell him what you hear. My message has not changed from the first day until now. It's bold, but it's biblical. It hasn't changed. But even more than what you hear, I want you to tell John what you see. So what were they seeing there as they stood before Jesus? Look at verse 5. Here's what they saw. The blind receiving their sight. The lame, they were walking. Lepers were cleansed and the deaf were hearing. The dead were raised up to life. And the poor, they've got good news preached to them. Now, let, let's, let's filter that through the ears of, of churchgoers like me, okay? I read that. When, I, when I've read that, always, here's, here's what I thought. Dude, dude, look what he's doing. Look at this. Look, people are getting their sight. People that couldn't walk are walking. The, the, the lepers with the spots, they're, they're being cleansed. People that have never heard a sound are hearing Dead people are being resurrected. 
The poor are, are, are hearing a message they've never heard before. I always read that emphasizing the sight, the walking, the cleansing, the hearing, the, the resurrection, the, the stuff like that. And my response was, man, I want to see some power like that. Man, I wish I had been there to witness that. And here's what Jesus said to me this week. He says, Rob, you're missing the point. It's not what I was doing. It's who I was doing it for. Let that sink in for just a minute. It's not what I was doing. It's who I was doing it for. Look at who's getting helped. And look at who's not. Look at who's receiving the blessings. And look at who's offended and missing out. The only ones being healed in this story are those who knew they had a need. It's the blind, not those that claim that they can see clearly and understand everything. It's the lame, not those who said that they can run the fastest, think the smartest, climb the highest. It's those diseased lepers, not those who claim that they're spotless and without sin. It's the deaf, not those who said, oh, I've heard it all. I've heard it all. It's the dead, not those who say, man, we are living the life. It's the poor, not those who are blinded by their own pride. Don't miss what Jesus is saying to John. What Jesus is saying to me and what Jesus is saying to you. Here it is. He's saying you can't get fixed until you realize you're broken. You can't get saved until you realize you're lost. You won't search for a Savior until you realize you're in trouble. So now look at how, John, how God's going to use this suffering in John's life. This is John, the, the, the most famous of all the prophets of that day. And Jesus says to John through these disciples, John, you're hurting, you're struggling, you're confused. You, you can't see what I'm up to in your life right now. You lost your identity, John. You can't just pick yourself up by the bootstraps and press on like you've always done. You feel like your, your life is wasting away the way the skin would be wasting away on that leper. You find it hard to, to hear from God right now, John. You feel like something inside of you is, has died. John, you, you feel helpless right now? Hopeless right now? To which John would have said... Absolutely. And Jesus says, Congratulations, John. You're finally there. You're finally ready for my grace. Now you're ready to be fixed. 
Now you're ready to be rescued. Now you're ready for me to transform your life. John, guess what? You're the one I came for. You're the one that I'm here for. Not because you think you're somebody, John. Not because you could preach a great message. Not because you could baptize thousands. You're the one that I came for because you're helpless and you're hopeless without me. John, it's not about what you can do for me, but it's what I can do for you. You see, John, I've come to call those who have nothing. Nothing to offer me and nothing to demand of me. You go tell John what you hear. But you tell John what you've just seen. That I came for guys just like him. Oh, and by the way, there's one more thing I need you to tell John. Verse 6. Don't forget to tell John, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Not by my claims, not by my cross, not by me, not by this sincere offer to help. Blessed is the one who's not offended by my honest assessment of their, their actual needs, not offended that I can see their emptiness, and yet I still love them. Not offended by the fact that I can see their worthlessness, and yet I still value them. Not offended that I can see their weakness and still want them on my team. Blessed are those who aren't offended by the fact that I can see their gross ignorance, and yet I offer to fill them with a spirit of wisdom. You see, John, I'm here for the poor and the powerless. But for the poor and the powerless who know that they're poor and powerless. For the poor and the powerless and those who will admit that they're powerless. Don't be offended, John, that I've come for the poor and the powerless because you're one of them. And you need me. Guys, don't miss this. This is the heart of the gospel. Only those who know they aren't can become those who are. So why is it that we're so so easily offended by Christ and by his offer of salvation, his offer of grace? Why are we offended by the truth? of our own condition. Here's what I've come up with this week. I think I'm offended by the truth that Christ speaks about me when I fail to understand the heart of Christ for me. I'm offended by the truth when I fail to understand the heart of Christ for me, but also Offended when I fail to understand and I'm unwilling to admit the truth about myself. So there's two sides to this. I'm offended when I don't understand how much Jesus loves me and why he would say those things and why he would want to do those things in my life. But I'm also offended when I look at myself and go, I'm not that bad. I'm unwilling to admit the truth about myself. Let me give you some examples. When Jesus says, well, well you guys are so sinful, this world is so helpless... Human beings were were so desperate that I had to leave heaven and come die in your place. This offends me when I don't understand the love that motivated Christ to come. Or when I think, man, I'm really not that bad, Jesus. 
Jesus says all sinners deserve to, to spend eternity in hell. And that offends me if I don't rightly understand the holiness of God. Or if I mistakenly think that I'm holy enough. Jesus says, well, I'm the only way. The, the, the only way. No one can come to the Father except through me. And this offends us when we don't understand the, the, the righteousness that's required to get there. Or we think that we can help to pave the way. We get offended by Christ when we don't fully understand who he is and what he's done. Or we don't fully understand who we are and what we've done. Let me give you an illustration that I hope that you can remember. If I came to you guys, and let's say today's your birthday. And I come to you and I say, man, happy birthday today. We want to celebrate with you. I've been watching you for the last year or so that we've been friends. And I've been studying your life and... There's just some things I noticed about you, and, and I have, man, I have thought long and hard, and I have come up with the perfect birthday present for you. I mean, this is, this is a game changer. It's something I think will fit you perfectly. It's the perfect gift. It's exactly what you need, and I think it will change your life forever. Happy birthday. And you take my little bag, and you open it up, and you go, Deodorant? Soap? Breath mint? Now, let me ask you a question. Would you be offended if I said, I've studied you. I've, I've thought long and hard. This is a game changer for you. This will change. You'll have friends and influence enemies. You are going to be different because I've thought about you and I've got a gift for you. Would that offend you? Before you can answer that, you really got to know two things. Number one, you need to know my heart. And number two, you need to know your condition. Hello? Now, if my heart was to do this in front of the church family so I could insult you and humiliate you and make fun of you, then you have a right to be offended. My motives are not pure. My heart's not right. If my heart was filled with malice, yeah, you've got a reason to be offended. If I lack the, a sincere love and concern for you, and, 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 I, and no matter how appropriate my gift might seem, it, it would be reason for offense. But you also need to know if you've got an accurate assessment of yourself. Because if you have an inaccurate opinion of yourself... You stink, but you don't know it. Then you, you're going to be offended. You think you smell fine when in fact you don't. You see, the only person that can receive a gift like this and say thank you is who? The person who knows they stink but they're powerless to do anything about it. I don't have the money to run to the dollar store. I don't have what it takes to change my problem. I stink, I know it, but I can't change it. That's the person who says thank you for a gift like that. And some people look at the grace of God like this and go, how offensive. You say, I can't save myself. Oh, watch me. 
you, you say my sin stinks. What do you know? Here's the problem. Many of us have an inaccurate assessment of ourselves. We don't know the heart of God, and we have an inaccurate assessment of ourselves. We think that we're smart enough to make the rules. We think that we are wiser than God when God says, hey, this this is allowed and this is not. This is right and this is wrong. We say, ah, I think better. I think different. We have an inaccurate assessment of ourselves and of God. What's what's really happened is that we've grown so accustomed to our filth and our body odor that we no longer see it and we no longer smell it. Sometimes we need someone else's help in order for us to see what we can't see about ourselves. Sometimes we need somebody to walk in the room who smells clean. And fresh to realize that we don't. And isn't that why Jesus came? To show us that we didn't have what we thought. You see, the gift of grace might seem offensive at first, but when you understand his heart, and you rightly interpret your condition, then and only then can you say thanks. Grace is like that surgeon who wounds you with a knife to heal you from disease. And guess what? Us churchgoers, we're the hardest group of people to convince that we stink. They can't smell themselves. We're blind to our filth. We claim the smell is somebody else. We say the soap and the deodorant and the breath mints just aren't necessary. And we're offended that anybody would suggest differently. However, when you look at the sinners, <laughs> when you look at the helpless, they love to be with Jesus. You know why? Because they knew they stunk. They, they knew they couldn't hide the stench. And they had long since quit trying. They were desperate. They were ready. They were willing to be cleaned up. There was no pride left. Here's John in prison, a hole in the ground, probably still wearing that old camel skin clothing, sweaty, stinky, filthy, no showers. Physical reminder of a spiritual reality. And Jesus says to John, John, Don't you be offended at the truth about your righteousness being like filthy rags. See it, confess it, and enjoy my gracious gift. 
Because only those who see their real need and understand the deep love of God are not offended by his offer of grace. They're not offended at all. They're grateful for his grace. Just as Jesus was not offended by the question but was grateful that John had asked it, so the sinner who realizes his sinfulness is not offended by the offer or offended by the answer, but is grateful that it was given. The rest of the world, the proud, the stinky, the unrepentant, they're not yet ready for that grace. They're satisfied in their stench. So Jesus sends word to John the Baptist, John, don't you be offended. I came for people just like you. Not that old John, not that bold, powerful, confident John the Baptist who would take on the king. John, I came for the new John. It's broken and doubting, discouraged, helpless. Now, John, you're ready for my grace. And guess what, John? My grace is sufficient for you and everyone like you. Let me close by asking you a couple questions that may penetrate deeply, okay? I hope they do. Are you offended by this bodacious claim that you need the grace of God. Is that offensive to you? Are you arrogantly thinking that you've got some better solution? That maybe you can find you some uh, less offensive God? How about this? Do you want a Jesus that you can control? Is that what you're looking for? A a Jesus that will let you say, well, I'll follow you as long as... As long as you don't demand too much of me, as long as you don't draw the lines too narrow, as long as you let me make the rules, <coughs> I'll follow you as long as you don't change my plans and don't ruin my dreams. I'll follow you, Jesus, as long as you don't start telling me what to do. Is that the kind of Jesus you're looking for? Because that's not the Jesus of the Bible. Or do you find yourself today where John was, desperate to know the truth? Desperate to know, is Jesus really the one? Is your heart restless within you? Because this is the passage where at the end of this series, we're going to see Jesus say, Come unto me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest for your soul. Is your heart restless? Do you really want some honest answers? If so, you've come to the right place because Jesus is not afraid of honest questions. But beware of this. There's a big difference in honest questions and a list of objections that you're trying to hide this rebellious heart behind. John asked, Jesus, are you the one or do I need to keep looking? And Jesus says, John, I am the one. But I'm the one for those who will admit that they're not. So what about you? Are you ready to admit that you need him? Are you ready to admit that you cannot do this on your own? That you're, you're bankrupt. You can't even afford the soap and the deodorant and the breath mints. Are you broken enough to admit that you need his grace?
Or does my suggesting that this morning offend you? As we close, I'm going to ask you to do yourself a favor, okay? It's going to sound really gross. Here's what I'm going to ask. I want you to sniff your pit. Maybe not physically, but spiritually this morning. I want you to sniff your pits. Take, take a big whiff of that deep, dark place inside you where sin dwells. Can, can you smell the stench of that sin? It's more offensive than any body odor you have ever smelled. At least it is in the nostrils of God. Can, can you sniff your pit and, and honestly say, I'm fine, smells like roses to me. I don't need Jesus, I don't need his forgiveness. In fact, I don't even care for the scent of that grace stuff. Do yourself a favor. Take a deep whiff. And see if you are not still one in need of God's grace. And then let him apply that grace to you. Because if your heart is restless and you're tired of the stench, you're searching for the truth, that search can end right here, right now. By you turning to Jesus and saying, Jesus, you know what? I've been in church all my life. Just like John the Baptist. But I need the truth of what was said here today. I need to know, Jesus, that your grace has been applied to my life. My identity can only be found in you. So are you it? I think so, Jesus. I know so. Set my heart at peace. Apply your grace to me. You can end that search right here, right now, by turning to Jesus. Anything else would be foolish and arrogant. Let's pray.